As I've gotten older, I've noticed that there are things that I do that are my dad replicated, that, that have nothing at all to do with genetics. So for instance, if I'm in a store and I'm needing to read the label on something, I'll notice I've caught myself doing it hand on hip, uh, head tucked tuck back so that I can see through the magic part of my glasses and, and read, read the, the labels. Uh, my dad does that. Uh, I've noticed that when I'm doing a physically demanding task that I clench my jaw and purse my lips like my dad does perfectly. Now, here's the thing. There's not a gene that says look at a label this way in me. There's not a gene that says hold your mouth like this when you're doing a difficult task. So why am I doing it? I'm doing it because the environment in which I grew up shaped me in ways that aren't genetic but are innate in me. Environmental factors are powerful influences in shaping our lives. Environmental factors have a much more profound influence, in fact, on my life than just the personal oddities that I have just shared. My mom's side of the family grew up incredibly poor. I want you to think of the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And that's what a family reunion is on that side of the family for me. I, I, I mention it because that Byler side of my family, because of their life circumstances, are always for those who have to go through life without the benefit of privilege for those who are left out and left behind. Now, there is no justice gene in the human genome, but I've been profoundly impacted by that value from the Byler side of my family. On my dad's side of the family, the Lynch side of the family, you encounter people who are stoics. I mean, they're farmers. I'm talking never complain, suck it up, never let them see you sweat kind of people until they weren't, and then out of nowhere, they could flash this white-hot anger. Now, there is not a suck-it-up, blow-it-up gene in the human genome, at least that I know of, and yet I know that my environmental lynchness has wired me in that way. My point is, is that even the most individualistic among us have been influenced both positively and negatively by environmental factors that are so overpowering that they can only be escaped through a rigorous lifelong attention to them. We are shaped by our family environment. We are shaped by our peer environment and we are shaped by our cultural environment. So here's today's question. How do you live in a secular faith hostile culture without it fundamentally changing who you are? Keep that in mind. And find Daniel chapter 6 in your copies of God's Word. Today, in this chapter, we reach the climax of the biographical section of Daniel before it gets weird in chapter 7. And we're going to take our leave of the book here. And in this chapter, we, we get details surrounding the most famous event, I think arguably, in his life. His experience in the lion's den. But none of it can be understood without grasping that this took place after 70 years of living and working in the courts of pagan rulers. So Daniel 6 is less about living through the night in a den of lions than it is about Daniel living his entire life 
in a cultural lion's den, hostile to his faith and worldview, without ever succumbing to its influence. It's about surviving Babylon with your faith intact. And it's important to hear today because environmental factors culturally threaten to ruin our influence in ways we've not even thought of as individual Jesus followers and also as his church. And so as we look at Daniel 6 and see his example today, we'll learn first that to survive Babylon, we need Christ-like character. Christ-like character. Now, Daniel 6 opens with the same scene. We're still in Babylon. We're still in the Babylonian courts of the rulers. But some important changes have taken place. We're still, as I said, in Babylon, but it is now the Persian Empire that rules the roost. And the ruler is a man named Darius the Mede. Daniel has a long and storied track record of loyalty and being used by the pagan kings who rule in Babylon, so much so that Darius is prepared to essentially make Daniel the second in command of all of the empire, firing the jealousy of uh, the other people in the court who desired Daniel's disgust promotion for themselves. If you've worked vocationally at all, you kind of get that things don't change much. They were jealous. They wanted that job for themselves. So in a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thinking, the jealous join forces to knock Daniel the front runner out of contention in order to open up the possibility for the job themselves. But they have a problem. And we discover what that problem is in verse 4. Look at Daniel 4. Then the, the high officials and the satraps brought, uh, sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless... We find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, let's make sure that we understand that we know exactly what this dilemma is and what their plan was. Daniel, we read in those verses, has given them no reason vocationally to attack. He, he, he's earned the right for this promotion. Verse 3, which we didn't read, says for the second time in two chapters that he had an excellent spirit, which refers to his skill in being able to advise the king in a trustworthy way. Verse 4 underscores this by saying, saying that he was faithful, which is a reference not to his faithfulness to God here, but his faithfulness in serving the king. So they've got nothing to mask their jealous motives in regard to Daniel's service to Darius, which was the basis of his promotion in the first place. But they do have something that they can run with as it relates to Daniel's service to his God. Daniel's reputation was such that they knew that Daniel would betray his earthly king before he would betray his true king. So they figure out a way for Daniel's faithfulness to his God to become the trap door that will drop, Darius, or, uh, drop Daniel from Darius's presence. And here's what they propose. Look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, 
the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, which was a part of Babylonian Persian law, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. You read about that a lot in the book of Esther, so that it cannot be revoked or changed. And here's what I want us to see. I think it's important to see this, very easy to overlook. These men clearly had no qualms with lying to accomplish their aims. The first word in the English Standard Version of verse 7 is the word all. They come to the king and they say, all of your lieutenants, all of them have agreed about this proposal. But clearly Daniel hadn't. So they're lying at the get-go. They weren't going to let truth stand in their way of getting rid of Daniel. But what was it they were proposing, really? We need to pay attention to that. Were they proposing that Darius be treated as a god? Well, not likely, unless they were saying, you get to play god for 30 days, which is not something that they would have done. It's more likely that it was an appeal to vanity rooted in the belief in ancient times and even modern times, that the king was the sole representative of the kingdom's deity on earth. For instance, in sometime in the next year, King Charles will be uh, crowned king of England, and there will come a point during his coronation where the anointing takes place. And that represents the moment when the king of England becomes God's representative to the kingdom of Great Britain. That's similar to the thinking that is being appealed to in Darius here. So, so what Daniel's enemies are proposing is that all the people of the kingdom direct their religious activities through Darius for the next 30 days, bypassing all other forms of religious activity. They propose this knowing that the pride in Darius will say, well, you betcha, and gladly accept the homage, and that Daniel's commitment to his faith would immediately reject that as being something that he would do. So here's the thing. Seventy years, seven decades in Babylon, serving pagan kings and become a becoming acquainted with pagan rituals has not changed any of Daniel's core commitments or his worldview. In fact, if 70 years of serving pagan kings and becoming acquainted with pagan rituals had done anything to Daniel, it had caused his core commitments and his worldview to stand out more and more and more against the darkness. Can the same be said of us as the church at large? but as individual Christians as well. If I've learned anything over the last several years of pastoring a church, it's that most of us, when confronted that, with that kind of question, will say, yes, of course. My core commitments stand out in the darkness. That is why I'm being persecuted. Okay? Let's talk about that. The Episcopal Church conducted a survey called the Jesus in America Survey, whose results were released earlier this year. Now, based on the questions it asked and their response to the result that the survey produced, it appears that one of the goals, maybe the main goal of the survey, was to determine if non-believers have different attitudes between liberal Christians and conservative Christians, with their hope and belief probably being that liberal Christianity was more likable to culture. 
Well, here's the good news. 50% of those who stated they were non-believers when surveyed believed that Jesus was an important religious figure. So that means of the irreligious people who responded to the survey, half weren't put off by Jesus in any way. But when the Jesus in America survey asked, what characteristics do you associate with Christians in general, meaning liberal Christians, conservative Christians, all Christians in general, the non-religious selected these words from the polls options. Hypocritical, 55%. Judgmental, 54%. Self-righteous, 50%. Next up, arrogant, unforgiving, disrespectful. Episcopal Church presiding Bishop Michael Curry said it was encouraging that, quote, Americans still find Jesus compelling, and I would agree. However, it's obvious, he says, and I quote, behavior of many of his followers is a problem. And it's not just certain Christians. It's all Christians, meaning liberal and conservative alike. Meaning that it's very likely that more often than not, the reason that we are being attacked is because we are so unlike the Savior that we claim to follow, at least as the non-religious understand him, than we are for being attacked for our core commitment standing out in the darkness around us. Daniel was singled out because he had a character shaped by the God he followed so that the only thing that could be credibly attacked in his life was his service to that God. Daniel 6 challenges me to live a life where those who oppose me are forced to say something like, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Derek unless we find it in connection to the law of his God. To survive Babylon, we need Christ-like character, which is achieved when we also maintain consistent discipline. So Darius, of course, agrees to what the jealous court officials propose and the decree is signed. So what will Daniel do? This is the dramatic tension, really, of the entire book, even more so than the den of lions. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed And gave thanks before his God, then note this, as he had done previously. Now, if you grew up in the faith like I did, you you almost certainly hear, hear your childhood Sunday school teacher saying, So, boys and girls, Daniel was not afraid to pray to God. And because that's so ingrained in us, we never get past Daniel's obvious willingness to give his life serving God and think about this on a deeper level, but there's more here to see. Daniel's enemies were jealous. They craved political power, so much so that they were willing to abandon ethics to gain the political win of getting rid of Daniel. Remember, they lied to Darius and said, all of us have agreed to this. So track with me here. Their plan depended entirely, entirely on the fact that they knew Daniel wouldn't compromise his faith to maintain his political influence or to protect his privilege in addition to protecting his life. And there's a lot that I could say about that. But the real thing to see here is how he resisted both this threat to his life and his influence. 
He did it because of the consistently disciplined, focused way that he practiced his faith. He prayed, the text says, as he had done previously, telling us that this action that he was taking here was not because of the decree. In other words, saying, well, I'm going to grandstand and have this act of situational defiance. But instead, that this prayer posture was a regular habit in his life. And from that habit, we learn so much about Daniel that should challenge us. We learn that Daniel's faith, for instance, was informed by the word of God. In Solomon's prayer on the occasion of the temple's dedication, a beautiful extended passage of scripture found in the book of 1 Kings, he spoke these words before the people to the Lord. And it may show up on the screen. I gave a wrong reference, and uh, it's, if it shows up, good. They're, they learned in the last service not to trust my notes. Uh, but I, I want to read to you what he says in 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 46. If they sin against you, meaning the people of God, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. In other words, if what happens to us happens to us. I mean, the, the, the situation of being deported to Babylon. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and get this, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. He understood that his people were in Babylon precisely because of what Solomon said might happen hundreds of years before. And he remembered that God's word, God's word gave him guidance as to what to do if he found himself in that situation, to turn toward the temple and pray. So this isn't grandstanding. He's doing what God's word had told him to do and had probably been doing it for 70 years. Daniel was obedient to God's word. We also learned that his faith wasn't shaken by his circumstances. Remember that at this point in human history, he was praying towards a city and a building that was in shambles. I mean, what he was doing is essentially something like you and I turning west and praying towards the landfill, for crying out loud. I mean, it's a disaster in Jerusalem. The fact that the circumstances screamed at him that this prayer was a useless exercise, nothing lives in Jerusalem, certainly not God, did not shake his faith. He knew that God would hear him. His word promised it. So he prayed unencumbered by worries about God's care for him and his people. And it was this consistent discipline of being immersed in God's word and regular prayer that gave him the strength to say, my reputation before the king, what that offers me, my very life means nothing to me at all when compared to faithfulness to the one true king, my God. To survive in Babylon means that we take our faith seriously. And taking your faith seriously doesn't mean grandstanding to pick a fight. 
It means passionately seeking God's presence and actively trusting Him as the disciplined habit of our life. And when we do that, not only will the Christ-like character that is meant to be formed in us be formed that stands out in Babylonian darkness, it will also give us the last thing that we need to survive, which is confident faith. Now, I've not read much of this chapter to you this morning because we already know so much of it by heart, even if we didn't grow up in church. I mean, it's a metaphor that we talk about going into the lion's den. Everybody is familiar on some level with Daniel 6. But I've got to read this. As we know, the enemies of Daniel succeeded in having him thrown into the lion's den, much to Darius's dismay, because as soon as that happens, he knows he's been duped into executing a good man. More than that, an innocent man. And after a long night, we read this beginning in verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm of any kind had been found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Now, here's a question I think it's important to ask. Did Daniel know this was going to happen? I mean, did he know he was going to be delivered from the den of lions? I think to say yes is to really speculate out beyond the, the testimony of Scripture. But he certainly knew it could happen. In fact, he had a life example that it could happen. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been cast by another king into a fiery furnace, and they came out not even smelling like smoke. So he knew it could happen. He may have even prayed for it to happen. I would have. I mean, as I walked down the steps, you know, God, it'd be cool if you did the thing you did for my three buddies in a similar way here. We would pray for that. But there is nothing in any of this that makes us believe that it ultimately mattered to him. His trust was in God. Loyalty to him was all that mattered. Obedience to him was all that mattered. And so he had the confidence to face the lions regardless of the outcome because his trust in God was absolute. Confidence breeds confidence. Faith breeds faith, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of those looking on from Babylon. I want you to look at Darius's words to all the people as Daniel 6 closes out in verse 26. I make a decree, Darius says, that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This is a pagan man 
not at all certain about even the formal identity of the God of Daniel, but who knew through Daniel's life that that God was greater than all gods. God gained glory from the pagans of Babylon because of the unwavering confidence and not panic of a man named Daniel. So what is our takeaway from all of this? And by all of this, I mean not just Daniel 6, but all of the biographical section, chapters 1 through 6 in the book of Daniel. What is the takeaway from this series? I want you to know for certain that Micah and I are not wanting you to walk away from this series saying, well, I just need to be more like Daniel. I just need to be more like Daniel. Because that would be to communicate that God just wants you to suck it up and try harder. That's not the gospel. God's not beholden to any of our abilities, any of our, any of our stick-to-itiveness in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. That's not the story of Daniel 1 through 6. The story of Daniel 1 through 6 is of a young man who passionately and faithfully pursued God for decades without fear or panic in a, in a world that was diametrically opposed to all that he believed. And as a result, God in his mercy and grace equipped him to make a difference, to stand out in the darkness when he needed to. So the takeaway isn't be Daniel. Please hear me. The takeaway, what we want to learn from this is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we saw Daniel do. As a habit of his life, turning as scripture instructed him towards Jerusalem and praying to his God in the hopes that he would hear and deliver his people. It was this kind of God and love and passion for God that caused Daniel to seek the welfare of people he would otherwise have been justified in calling his enemy. He cared for Nebuchadnezzar. He cared for his overseer, when he was new to Babylon. He cared for Darius. But he never sought off the hard edges of what he had to share. He wasn't there to be likable. He was there to demonstrate that love and to speak that truth in a way that put all of the responsibility on the people in front of them and caused them to say, this guy's different but he's not offensive. What he believes T-bones everything about me, but I've got nothing I can say about him unless I make it up. That's the outcome in Daniel's life of loving the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. And that's what God is calling us as individual believers and his church in the cultural Babylon in which we exist to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.